my estimated guess was 90% of all independent restaurants would close. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, Dave, you're just being fucking doom and gloom all over again. And what a surprise. And I think that number is going to be right. Hey, guys, John Heilman here with a new episode of Hell and High Water, my new podcast from The Recount. Dave Chang is one of the most influential restaurateurs of the 21st century, the presiding genius behind the Momofuku Empire, the star of Ugly Delicious and Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner on Netflix, the host of the Dave Chang Show podcast, and the author of a new memoir called Eat a Peach. I have known Dave for about 15 years or so, and I've eaten a ton of meals with him and shared even more conversations with him. And what makes him so compelling beyond what he does in the kitchen is his unflinching honesty and self-scrutiny and vulnerability, all of which are radically on display in Eat a Peach. The reason that we're talking to Dave today is because of the new role he's sort of taken in the course of the pandemic when he's become a leading voice in the food world, talking about the restaurant apocalypse brought on by COVID-19, about how so much of the industry is threatened with extinction, not just because of the virus and its implications, but uh, because of the structural flaws in the industry that existed even before the pandemic and the government's abject failure to help. Dave's arguments for why the independent restaurant industry needs to be saved, why it's too small to fail, as he puts it, and how it can save itself have made him a central figure of this moment as the pandemic has wrought havoc on a set of institutions that not only feed us, but mean the world to us, bring us incalculable joy in our cities, states, towns, and neighborhoods. And that is why I am so thrilled to have my friend Dave Chang here with us today. Hey man, it's good to see you. We actually have not laid eyes on each other in a while, partly because of the fucked upness of the world and partly because you had a kid and you know the combination of those two things have meant that our physical meetings has been have been severely curtailed. I think it's been like maybe more than a year since I last like actually physically saw you. You got to not count the last eight months, seven, eight months. That, that just doesn't count. So it's been about four months then. I right. Think. Yeah. But I ran into you like right before Hugo was born down in Tribeca and uh, like early 2019, I feel like. And then you really went into the hibernation pod because of your lovely, beautiful, like Instagram dominating son. That was true, but also work. It was a, a very, very, very busy. We opened like four restaurants yeah. uh, in a year. Yeah. Uh, all over the place. So that was that was a, a lot of travel, a lot of work. You've obviously been focused a lot on the the restaurant apocalypse. But like, is there a moment in early 2020 when that kind of realization of how bad this was all going to be for you, your yeah. industry, your restaurants? What was that moment? Late February, mid to late February. I'd been following it because I have friends that operate restaurants in China, basically all of Asia, almost every country, it seems. And uh, I knew how bad it was going to be. I mean, yet simultaneously, I was keeping my head in the sand too, like operating for the future, yet hoping that we would have leadership that would do better than what we saw in Asia. I think that was sort of the, the plan when it all unfolded was, well, at least we have the U.S. government and its infrastructure, so we won't be a total shit show like it is in China. And I think everyone was sort of snickering at Wuhan and be like, wow, that's so backwards almost. Um and no, that was highly sophisticated, and we were the dumbasses. And when I saw how everything was shifting in China to delivery, when I was speaking to my friends in Hong Kong, particularly in Korea, I knew that the industry was fucked. And 
I was in China in Shenzhen in 2003. Like I was at the epicenter of the SARS epidemic. So I, I knew how serious it was going to be because everyone was scaring the shit out of me. And I was like, oh, this is if this I just stopped my sense of forward thinking reality because for whatever reason, I just was like, it's not going to be as bad as it is here. When I realized I that's when we started to put some plans into place. And this was before March 1st, because that was my son's birthday. And a lot of people flew in for that. So it definitely was mid February. And I was beginning to think that, oh, this is going to be in my mind. And I'm not an economist far from it. But I was like, my estimated guess was 90% of all independent restaurants would close. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, Dave, you're just being fucking doom and gloom all over again. And what a surprise. And I think that number is going to be right. So you've been publicly wrestling with the economics of running an independent restaurant, what the implications would be due to COVID. Um, and all of that's kind of been under the rubric of too small to fail, which is obviously kind of a throwback to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, where the phrase was too big to fail. Uh, you've now kind of tweaked that and in terms of restaurants made it too small to fail. John, we needed help. Yeah. That's right. why I, I sent to our, you know, Schumer, AOC, Gillibrand. I was like, we need help. Yes. I didn't need we, everyone to clearly see that this was the 2008 financial crisis. Right. Except that it's restaurants and we're right. going to have the same outcome if we don't have like real intervention. Yeah. And we still haven't had that. Right. So you sent that tweet out, right? It was a tweet to all of, to like all of the leadership and basically said, help. And you have said to me that, you know, too small to fail is, is not just a clever tagline, right? You think that the restaurant business is Lehman Brothers, that this is... Collectively, the, yes. Right. And that's the scale of it, right? Mm -hmm. Just talk about what that means. You know, what, what does it mean? Like, I mean, you said 90% at that point. In later podcasts, I've heard you say 40%. Other people say two-thirds. No, like, I've, never, I've never said 40%. I've always maintained I think it's going to be 90%. 90%. Yeah. 90% of independent restaurants, not yeah. chain restaurants, but 90% are going to end up dead. If you're an independent restaurant, whether you realize it or not, you're competing against chains and corporate restaurants oftentimes that have access to public markets and deep pockets. How, yeah. are, you, how are you ever going to compete against that? You're, you can't. Also, a lot of these places have standard operating procedure where it's way more effective for them to implement protective gear and safety protocols. So this is the have and have nots for sure. And if you have deep pockets, you're going to crush. But most people don't realize, even if you're a busy restaurant, you might have a month or two months of cash flow to keep you afloat. So people need to understand that restaurants, a restaurant in your community, whether you realize it or not, is a bank. It is a small bank. It really is. It is a bank because most restaurants, like, again, it's an extremely high amount, like over 90%. Again, I'm not just throwing that number out. It's like something like 90% of all the cash that comes and generated by a restaurant goes out back to bakers, back to trash collectors, accountants, florists, you name it. Except that we don't charge interest. And we don't hold on to that money. It comes in, it comes out. So in fact, it really does act as a bank, as a middle midway station. And it's not just about feeding people. It's about these small restaurants or bigger restaurants in your communities, whether it's urban or rural, really do support so many other businesses. And 
the reason why we're going to have the same impact, I think, of 2008, 2009, unless there's intervention, I know the government's trying to figure that out, is all these restaurants are in real estate by landlords, whether they're small or large, that are probably highly levered themselves. So this ultimately has to go back to the investment banks anyway, and we need to figure this out. So there's like a bunch of things that are all true, right, that make this so complicated. One thing is that restaurants are super, super thin margin businesses. The fact that they've got these long-term leases, the leases are oppressive. It's a house of fucking cards. If you think about all those factors, and then you come in and say, okay, you guys are gonna shut down for three months, and when you come back, you're gonna be able to have half capacity or less. It's like, put a gun in my mouth. I mean, like, how do you survive that? You can't, you just can't. And fixed costs have raised, have increased every year, except for the cost of food. So ultimately, we could talk endlessly about the ills and future of the restaurant industry, but the economics weren't working pre-February 2020. Right. They just weren't. Right. People don't want to pay more for food. And it's clear that it was, as you say, a house of cards. The, the foundation was so wobbly. We don't even have standardized like time off nationally for employees that work in restaurants and mandatory leave. All these things that need to happen. Tipping is a huge issue, particularly now because so many wages are tied to the tips. We could talk about all that shit forever. And I think a lot of people have some awareness of that. And we don't even have to talk about the pivot to delivery, all of these things. You know, one of the big issues is we're going to have to pay more money for food. That's just going to have to be the case. I yeah. do not think America's ready. Right. That's only going to be exacerbated because if you're a chain restaurant or a nationally or a publicly traded restaurant group, you're going to drive your prices down. So you're going to see the complete eradication of the mid-market small mom and pop restaurant, in my opinion. And I'll push all that aside. Let's just start to answer this equation, this problem on the outliers, on the extremes of the spectrum here. Let's just say everything gets back to normal. You're able to dine at 100% soon. There's a vaccine and we can hope that that will happen. You've yeah. just gone through hell and back and you've made it. You're like, okay, now everyone's vaccinated. Do you think that corporate offices are going to come back in a year? Right. Do you think corporate travel will come back in a year? When do you think that will come back to normal? You hear people who say that like basically their office is closed until there's a vaccine and then they'll come back when there's a vaccine. I just have a hard time seeing most corporate offices ever coming back to normal. Right. If anything, it's like going to be a part-time at home. Right. And, you know, can we agree on that? I think yeah. that is somewhat the future. Yeah. So you're going to say goodbye to office catering, which affects bodegas, which affects small lunch shops, right? Happy hour, which is basically the entire bar business in urban areas, less so on the West Coast, more so on the East Coast. You're going to say goodbye to private dining rooms, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe one or two. Again, you're going to have the handful that are going to prosper and everyone else is going to have a harder time. You're going to say goodbye to corporate expense accounts. For sure, you're going to see that cut dramatically. I would say that the if, for people that aren't familiar with this side of the business, the restaurant industry, whether you realize it or not, has the same economic model of the airline industry in the sense of you know, the, the first class business class takes what, 15 to 20% of an yeah. actual airplane, but like 40% of the top line revenue. I don't know how a restaurant can get back. Just if you just eliminate corporate expenses the way we think it's going to happen, restaurants are totally fucked. Totally right. fucked. We got to take a break real quick here and go pay some bills. And then we got to talk about your memoir. But before we talk about your memoir, I want to talk about that grim discussion and what it means for your restaurant. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. 
And we're back with Dave Chang. Dave, you're talking about how everybody's fucked. 90% of independent business, of independent restaurants aren't going to make it. Just talk a little about Momofuku in this context, right? You know better than anybody what a beloved set of institutions you've built over the last 15 years or so. You have had to close a restaurant. Yeah, two right? restaurants. We had to sheets. move Sambar. Um, right. It's uh, You're processing that trauma later, right? Like I, I don't have time to think about it right now. Well, that's not that's not totally true. You, I, I mean, I heard you process it in real time when you closed Nishi, you closed the DC restaurant, you moved Sambar, which was also, I think, emotionally painful for you. You were, you know, I heard you talk about it in real time. I gave myself like 24 hours and then I'm like, I, I'll deal with this later. And I get that's that's a coping mechanism. But let me just ask you directly. First of all, are you in the 90 percent? Do you think Momofuku survives? I don't know. I mean, we. we <laughs> It's hard for us because we we still are in expensive real estate. We're still paying seven, you know, every, you know, all our fixed costs are the same. Some landlords have changed the rent, but it's not going to help enough. We're trying our best to continue to pay benefits, uh, COBRA for those that we had to furlough, which is insanely expensive. And that is part of a big bleed per month. And I don't know what happens uh, after December. A lot of these healthcare things change and PPP was a Band-Aid. It wasn't designed specifically for restaurants and we don't need to go into that. It's ultimately too complicated and arcane, but I don't yeah. know. Hey, listen, Momo's, we, we were going to try to change our restaurant group into mostly uh, 50% CPG. We made that decision two years ago. I've been sitting on 10 years of R&D with our lab. Consumer packaged goods. Yeah, yeah. We tried to diversify into all kinds of businesses that weren't actually selling restaurant food in the four walls of a restaurant because I knew that the infrastructure and the fixed costs were just fucked. We needed to change it. And I feel very fortunate and privileged that we can do this. A lot of people don't have the the ability to just turn on a new revenue spigot. So we're doing that. And all of our restaurants are open, doing takeaway delivery, so, and doing dine-in, dine-out on the outside. Like, all of that's fine, but it's not like, <laughs> you know, like, I think we're going to pivot. Momofuku is going to continue to change. I hope we don't have to close restaurants, but I won't say what name of a restaurant. There's a restaurant in New York City that I think is the bellwether for the industry, right? Yeah. Do you say you won't? I won't say the name. I won't say the name because it would be too depressing ultimately if people realized it. But I, 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 I'm friends with the chef and I've always followed sort of the, the, the economic downturns and upturns because if they could do well, then there's hope for everybody else. Right. This restaurant is, uh, they told me they're going to run out of money early spring. Now, that is going to be incredibly bad news for everyone else if this restaurant cannot survive in new york yeah. i don't know who the fuck can and yeah. that is terrifying and just, i don't know what else to say about that you're hopeful in the sense that you feel like you have been you were well positioned to adapt and you've been scrambling try to make that pivot and the multiple pivots that you have to make in this context but you're not like you don't think you're you don't think you're doomed, but you also think there's some chance that you could be doomed. It's a high chance we're doomed. High chance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And when I say doomed, I think Momo will survive in some way, but it's not a rosy picture because what we need more than anything is a vaccine or contact tracing, and we need to get to some semblance of normalcy like they have in Asia. Um, right. And the fact that my friends in Europe are opening their restaurants and going out to eat Italy. 
Italy is like right. back to normal for the most part. Yes. It's right. embarrassing for us. So doesn't that get to, I mean, to loop back to an earlier part of the conversation, is it not the case that if you look around the world right now and you think about where other countries are, like the help didn't come, right? Yes, yes. Right? They, they totally fucked us. I've talked to a couple senators. There's a $120 billion restaurant act that most likely won't get passed considering that the current stimulus bill is at $1 trillion. They're not going to give over 10% to restaurants. But yeah. they are going to say the airline business, the cruise industry, all these industries are going to be saved, but they're, they just don't have the organization and lobbyist structure that a lot of these other industries do. So we were behind the game uh, a lot when people were getting money for stimulus and getting things organized. So, no, we didn't get it. And we need something that is syst like systematically going to inject cash. We need universal basic income 100%. And right. we need law and legislation, like so much of the things like tipping and time off, these things will only happen when legislation is passed. But this is what has been clear to me. The industry, if you operate at independent restaurants was perilous to begin with. So if you wanted to get money from a bank, 99% chance you were not going to get a loan from a bank because it's not a good business, right? So that should tell yeah. you everything. I think yeah. that a lot of the, the, the smarter officials are hesitant to just pump money back into this business unless we can actually fix the foundation, right? Yeah. And I get it because listen, another economic disaster might happen, another pandemic might happen, a natural disaster might happen, and it has shown how fragile the restaurant industry is. What are we going to do to ensure the foundation so we're going to better withstand any problems in the future. And right now right. we're not addressing those things collectively as an industry. And that's a problem. There's just not, there's, there's fake solidarity on our end. So what have we learned in the six months of this, right? As you guys have tried to figure out different ways to adapt, you talked about, you know, the delivery model, obviously delivery is now a dominant thing in New York city and some other places. It has to be government regulated. Number one. Okay. They have to regulate delivery. You want to see a fucked model. It's restaurant delivery with, you know, all the companies that deliver food to your home. It is fucked because it's indentured servitude. It's 30% of your top line. So if you buy $100 from a restaurant, 30 bucks directly goes to the delivery company. Right. It's indentured servitude for the restaurants. The restaurants have to be in business with the door dashes and the Postmates and whoever. And you can't survive without it. Especially now you can't survive without it. They're taking 30% off the top, and that's just also economically unsustainable for the restaurants. Yeah, and I don't even know if they're making money. The delivery companies are making money on this. This whole model might be totally fucked to begin with. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I joked, but I don't, I don't joke. I think that the USPS, United States Postal Service, should get into the food delivery business. 100% it should. It's something they did, you know, after World War One, I, I believe, or World War Two. So it can happen and we should do it. We need to figure out how to do this because if this is how people are going to eat. We need to have the government involved on this for sure. Dave, you can start thinking about this now. Just put it in the back of your head. I'm going to play a game with you called If I Were King, which I know is a kind of game you're <laughs> going to love to indulge in because Dave as king is like, you've always been kind of seeking omnipotence. We're going to get that at the end of the podcast, but let's take a break right now for a little bit of advertising, a little bit of commerce, and then we will return and talk yeah. about Dave's super uplifting memoir. We're gonna take a break, we'll be right back. We are back to talk with the Dave Chang, my dear friend, and one of the people, as fucked up as this is, one of the people I really <laughs> admire in, in the world. One of the things I have always found most to admire in you, Dave, is your fucking incredible honesty. I'm not gonna get all earnest here, but the book, Eat a Peach, 
it is really true to you in a way that I think matters enormously when it comes to the writing of a memoir. But the thing about a lot of famous people who do memoirs, and a lot of politicians who I know well who do memoirs, they basically get a ghostwriter who knocks out a book, they say a few things into a microphone, and the book comes out, and it's the, the image of themselves that they want the world to see. And then there's a good memoir, like one that's real and tells the truth. And whether people like Dave's memoir or not, the thing about Edith Peach is it's really, is really brutally honest, just like you always are. So talk about that. That's a scary thing, given some of the truths that are in this book. Yeah, I mean, it was terrifying, but in some ways, this whole process was just like talking to my shrink. And, and ultimately, I just didn't want to hurt anybody along the way. And I don't know, it wasn't cathartic or anything like that. If anything, I think that it was about learning new perspectives. And, and hopefully that was going to be very clear and self-evident to anyone that's reading it. It's hard for me to process that the book is out and to think about it in an objective way. Am I constantly terrified of everything anyway? Yeah. So that's why I'm like, it doesn't really affect me because I'm scared of everything anyway. Right. The Dave Chang memoir, which delves into not only your rise to prominence and your success, but also your depression, your struggles with various kinds of emotional instability, suicidal ideation, stuff that millions of people deal with, obviously, but also stuff that you don't often see dealt with in such a frank way in the memoirs of people who are famous. When you sat down to write the book, your objective was what? I mean, again, when we first did the book, I didn't think it was going to be a memoir. It's true. I, we did this deal like seven, seven and a half years ago. I did it because I needed the money. And I thought <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about doing it until, you know, the publisher was like, you gotta, you gotta do this fucking book. And even then I was like, it's going to be a business book. I mean, again, right. I, I have the capacity to convince myself of anything to get me through whatever I need. And then when I wrestle with the idea of, oh shit, it's an actual memoir and the embarrassment of it being a memoir. Once I got past that, I was like, fuck it, let's just talk about everything. And, and that's how it all happened. And, and talking about a lot of the hurtful things that happened in my life and the dark places that I've been all sort of filled one bucket, which was to help destigmatize mental illness. Right. And I think there were three buckets, right. no preference of order. One was to talk about my identity, which I think a lot of people that are immigrants, not necessarily Asian Americans, but any immigrant could relate to. Two was to talk about the culinary world and the insane 20 years it's been. And three was I've read a lot of books about mental illness. Uh, I think there's some really good ones like Kay Jemison Redfield. I think uh, Will Styron's book, Darkness Visible, is fantastic. You have Noonday Demon, which is way too fucking long. You have other ones out there. <laughs> it's a long, it's a, it's a long, long book. fucking book. And then you have other ones that are just uh, a little bit too prescriptive or this is what I did and it's going to work for me and look how fabulous it was. Or, or they're just like you know, depression for dummies. And I just was like, I want to talk about what works for me and be very honest about it because over the, you know, I don't know how many years now, a lot of people in my life, not a surprise if you know me, come to me when they're feeling crazy or they're down because they're like, there's one person yeah. I know that's fucking out of his fucking mind. That's Dave. And I know that he yeah. gets help. And I'm going to say it's a relatively high number of people in my life that have yeah. come to me. And each time I've, I've told them what's worked for me and what to expect and and just had a dialogue with them. And I think it's been incredibly helpful and all of them have sought help beyond myself. I'm just someone that they could ask for a resource and, 
and I think the best way that helped them was to be brutally honest about my own battle with it. And if I could be honest about it, then they could take the next step, which isn't very easy. It's probably the hardest thing to do, which is to ask for help, right? Yeah. And that was the point, was to destigmatize it to the point where people aren't afraid to talk about it. Your rise to prominence was really fast and really dramatic, but it's amazing to me reading the book and knowing you, you know, the, the truest thing in the book is the quote where you say, I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't, who gives a shit? I think early on in my life, especially the beginning of Momofuku, and I think it maybe is a little bit more clear to people, so many of those decisions that we made that were contrarian, they weren't necessarily contrarian. They were contrarian in the sense that people would be like, what kind of fucking lunatic would do that? <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like if there's contrarian and then there's what kind of fucking lunatic would do that. And we yeah. did that because every day I woke up just blind rage, wanted to burn the world down. And I convinced myself that everything was an end to the mean, which was to do whatever we needed to do to build the best restaurant possible. And along the way, I did a lot of good and I did a lot of bad. And that rage fueled me. And that rage was literally one day at a time. I'm going to live and make decisions with complete abandonment of the future. <laughs> and that's how I lived. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like, uh, uh, you know, I'm being hyperbolic, but it really wasn't. It was, I almost got myself in this pathological state where I just like, I'm going to do whatever I need to fucking do. And obviously a moral compass, but I, uh, that was, that was exhausting. <laughs> and I still feel like that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. This guy in the Wall Street Journal who wrote about the book raises the issue, right? Which is a lot of, of people you and I know have been canceled in the chef world, right? A lot of bad shit goes on in restaurants. It's a very patriarchal industry. A lot of your colleagues, especially some very famous celebrity chefs, have been have behaved really badly. You know, you admit to a lot of behavior in the book that though not in the category of anything related to me too related bad behavior but just in terms of your your anger management issues your yelling at people you know some of that stuff that is for a lot of people looks like hostile workplace stuff do you worry i mean do you how do you contextualize what's happened i mean you're not proud of this behavior i know no, i mean I, I here's the thing with me though is i've never hit it all our kitchens have been open and I have worked so hard because I, this is not who I am as a person. I am incredibly depressed as a person, but I'm a wallflower for the most part. I am a very passive person by nature. And the restaurant, because I was willing to sort of just be like, fuck it, I'm going to die either way. I don't give a shit. You know, it was like a full-blown id. That was like my life. And I, uh, I, I just, I realized that something wasn't right on top of my own depression and I didn't understand it and I'm still trying to unpack it. And I think the difference with me was it was all happening. I was very honest about it all. There was no place for me to hide. Was I, do, do I have an anger issue? Yes. 
Did I verbally abuse people? Yes. Do I still have an anger issue? Yes. Have I put 16 years of therapy into addressing it? Yes. Can I tell you exactly why I get angry in a certain way? Yes. Do I have dis dysregulation of my emotions? Yes. Um, <laughs> do I know why, why that happened? Yes. From abandonment, from fear, from pain, from my own abuse. And one of the things that happened with cooking was I found something that gave me meaning to live. And yes. in an aggregate, all the things that are sort of uh, stupid minutia for everyone else, they were things that never failed me. When in my normal life, where I lived in a household of conditional love and everything legitimately failed me, these things that I could do, like writing on a piece of tape and cutting it properly, condensing, I'm not even talking about cooking, I'm just talking about the littlest fucking things, tying on an yeah. apron properly. They were, you know, these platonic, things that kept me upright and they gave me meaning and when i saw someone not caring about it as much as me i internalized it as they're trying to attack me and i spent so much time talking about this you know the best way i've been coming up with every analogy a lot of it was like a my I'm never going to get rid of my anger response. My anger response is like my T cells or my immune system to COVID. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And some people fucking die because their immune response is too strong. I'm trying to learn how to dial it down. So it's like a one or two, not a fucking 11. And, yeah. and that's just it. And it happens to my, with my own wife. Like I, I cannot distinguish who's on my side or not. And it's a real fucking debilitating thing. And yeah. it fucking sucks. And the thing that I go to immediately when I'm in that moment is pain of self-flagellation, both mentally or physically, because that's the only thing that truly has never let me down. And that pain becomes comforting. And I could talk forever about all of this and all I ask is, I have been a motherfucker, I've been obnoxious, I can still be a motherfucker, I can still be an asshole, but I look at all my addiction to rage as an addiction, and I'm not asking yeah. for anyone to forgive me, I have to earn forgiveness along the way, and I, I have done a lot of good, and I've done a lot of bad, my goal is to try to make sure that bad turns into good, and if people... I can't say anything more than that is I'm trying my best. And if, if that, that's my humanity and I I've been honest about it. It's not like someone should be like, what, what the fuck? This is a surprise, right? It's been actually weirdly celebrated in a lot of the media. I've been profiled. I've never hit it. And yeah. the hardest part though was, uh, after my dad passed, you know, it's sometimes you, you don't see these perspectives. I realized that I treated a lot of, not a lot, some people that were close to me in my past, like my father treated me and I was, I was yeah. beyond embarrassed and I was beyond shameful and I had put in so much work to be better and to apologize. And the fact that like, I, I sort of maybe knew it all along, but I didn't fucking embrace it. That really hurt me. And it fucking made me spiral out of control. Um, so that was tough. So, you know, John, I, I don't know, man, like I, I can only try to be me and, and, and try to get better. And I think that's the only thing that I've been able to do. Well, this is why I started out by talking about, when we started this segment, why I started talking about honesty, right? You write in the book about how, you said a thing a second ago about how being a chef saved you. You also write in the book about how restaurants and being a chef and being an entrepreneur, all of it, your whole identity, brought out the best in you and the worst in you. And you just described the worst in you, right? 
It's also the case, though, that this stuff did bring out the best in you. You know, you've done your requisite and honest self-flagellation here. But talk about the ways in which it brought out the best in you. And in particular, I want you to, to, to locate that discussion in this last six months that has been different from any other six months that any restaurateur has ever experienced before and, and talk about it in, 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 the, in the context of your life and your business. You know, in terms of doing good, like one of my problems, again, is acknowledging good that's actually happened. And, you know, that's that's hard, right? We, we, we You know, on my podcast, you talked about, you know, Georgetown Prep. We talked about my, my upbringing, which yeah. was abusive as fuck, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I took one story out of a hundred, and that one story is me breaking my fucking leg and not being able to go to the hospital, right? So imagine the other fucking stories. So <laughs> at some point you learn that good is the absence of criticism. And it's really hard to appreciate anything that's happened because I'm trying, I'm learning. One of the things I'm trying to learn is gratitude and to forgive myself. And when I think about the good, what I've really been weighing, especially in quarantine is have I done more good than bad? And no one's perfect. You can't judge someone in a vacuum. So to me, you're a, an aggregate of all the decisions you've made. You are all these former versions of yourself. And it's a very, again, Buddhist thing. It's, it's like you've inherited all of these things that you've done. And I can only hope that I've done more good than bad. And what I've been wrestling with is what actually good have I done other than employing people? Have I really made their lives better? Have I improved the environment? Have I made it worse? I know we've done good. We've employed thousands of people. We've done all that kind of shit. I know that people have found their significant others. I think that people have found meaning in their work. I think what's been good is we've built a hell of a team and we have some of the most amazing, beautiful people, you know, I mean, I say beautiful, like right. inside beautiful, they're just unbelievable. And that I feel is a good thing. And, and no one would ever think, particularly myself, that Momofuku could be an agent of change or actually a leader in this. We're sort of the leader in this, you know, and I think like one recent thing that was good was like we spent, I don't know, two to 3000 hours developing a standard operating procedure for how our restaurants would operate with protective gear and food ha safety handling we didn't have to give that out to everybody you know we did that because we knew we we're in this together and and i'm hard on myself it's really hard to think about the good things but only the only times when i think about good is when it's happened to other people and it's being selfless and and i think about good when i think about our restaurant in sydney australia and paul carmichael and Kylie Javier Ashton, like Paul's like one of the only black chefs at a top tier yeah. restaurant. And I love that guy. He's the best. I, I love that guy. And like, we, you know, he's one of the best chefs in the world. And I think what's good is they've been able to take that restaurant to heights that I could never have taken. And it's way better. And he's way better than me. So like when I see it in reflection of what we've done and the opportunities creatively and financially for other people, I can see it as good, but it's hard for me to see it as this like, this monolith i can't see it as that because it's always shrouded by we can do better we can do better we can get better and how bad we are that can always improve and i think the past six seven months it has shown that you know we're trying to make i think what's good is this i think whether people agree with it or not our moral compass has always been right 
Yeah. And I, I, that will never waver. Our integrity, our moral compass has, has never really faltered. It may have faltered, but we've always tried to make the decision that we feel is right. And currently, the restaurant industry is what sh- is, is in a trolley car problem, which is, should be only in an academic setting. But you basically have to make a decision between two terrible decisions. And, and um, the trolley car problem is the trolley car is racing down the road and there's five people tied to the trolley tracks. If the car keeps going straight, it's going to kill all five of them. You're standing on the side. If you pull a lever, it diverts the train, but it kills another person who's standing there. So you're basically facing two bad options, either kill five people or kill one person, and you have to make that decision. That's what the trolley car problem is in moral philosophy. I'm proud that my team, particularly Marguerite and Elizabeth Crystal, and the whole team of Momofugu, and that's what I mean. The goodness of our group is the group itself. And yeah, and the work we're doing is so positive. And how we've made some really horrific decisions, just so stressful, is that we've made them. And like we haven't wavered and we've always we've made we've been making the decisions knowing that it was going to be criticized either way. And we're still battling. We're still trying to make it work. And I think that's good. The good of whatever I've done, I think, is the spirit that we're we're seeing this resolve. Like we're going to find a fucking way. You know, you hate getting compliments. You love having your food complimented and your restaurants complimented. You hate getting personal compliments. But I do think that like what I have seen in the last six months from you is this moment pushing you to be more than you were before. At the beginning of the pandemic, you said a thing about how like it's easy to just lament, but we don't have time to lament if we're in the restaurant business. We have to lead. And I think everybody would agree with that. But I think a lot of people have just decided to lament. And not that many people have decided to pick up the baton and lead. And what I just, as I've seen you talk through the economic structure issues, talk through what the restaurant business needs to do to survive, talk through what the government should be doing to help it. That's shit that like the Dave Chang I met 15 years ago would not have been on that shit. Even five years ago, I would have thought Dave's a leader of a kind, but he's not going to step up to address that stuff in the, in the really consistent, rigorous way you have over the course of the last six months. It wouldn't, I don't think anybody would have predicted that that would be the, the Dave Chang's role if you'd asked about the Dave Chang of 10 years ago and you have decided to be, to meet that challenge. Not perfectly, not, you know, flawlessly, but you're stepping up. So anyway, you hate to get complimented, but I think that that's, that is a way in which I think this moment has brought out the best in you. At least it's brought out a different element of you and a willingness to take shit on that, shows a kind of, I mean, I use the word you're going to fucking hate and we may never speak again, but maturity, <laughs> that was not, uh, not a word that would have been applied. Thank you. Not a word that would have been applied to Dave Chang 10 years ago. So here's my question, Dave, if you were king, what would you do? Like one thing, I mean, like a real thing, not like I snap my fingers, I end world hunger, but I mean like a real thing in the world, what would be the thing that if you could mandate it, fiat it, if you were king and it would happen, what would that be? Well, you know, not to get a roundabout answer to this, but I did want to end on something that was positive. And the reason why I think about all these negative things, is just how I think for me to get to the other side, I have to like, I got to be like Tim Robbins and Shawshank. I got to climb through all that shit just to get to that other side. And I really marinate and dwell in the most darkest fucking places. And I have to, because it's the only way I think I can see something that may not be happening, right? Because it's so hard to look at or to think about that no one else really wants to do it. And I believe that's where the answer is for us. And I am, 
I'm actually, I'm going to say it. I'm a fucking optimist. I think I'm an optimist because I'm a pessimist that hopes to be fucking wrong. And I do believe in hope. That is the most powerful thing is hope, hope for a better day, hope for the future. And I think it may not happen for me. Probably not. It'll be from somebody that we're not expecting it, but the future seems impossible because we're applying current sort of paradigms to it. We need innovation. We need ingenuity. We need to think of something that is literally when someone's told the idea that's impossible. That's exactly the fucking idea we need to sort of solve this business to sort of remedy all the ills. And if I were king, I don't know where I'd start, right? Like racial injustice would obviously be a top one. I, I don't know. Healthcare would be especially a top one right now. And is there a particular thing you would do for yeah, I'd like pay it's everybody. an achievable thing? I'd, I'd pay like everybody. For, for, the in, for the industry. The UBI thing. Yeah, everyone, I'd get paid. That's what I would do. In some ways, I'm trying to figure out if I had one choice that would help for equality in a longer term way, I think it would be giving people more money. That would be it. If I had one thing, it'd be more income for people. Yeah. If they don't have health care, then maybe they'd be able to pay for it. If they, you know, maybe they'd be able to like move themselves to a better neighborhood, right? Like, I, I, I don't know, but we need people to make more money. That is just very fucking clear. And not just in the industry, not just in your industry, but across the board. Correct. Let's see if we can work on that. Let's see if we can make that happen. Make it happen, John. Do something about it. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> All right, I'm getting off my fucking ass. I'm going to go do something about it right now. <laughs> Dave, thank you for doing this. Thank you, John. Dave, I'll see you soon, man. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Dave Chang for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. That is super helpful in terms of people finding out what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roden provided research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount.